Well, good morning. It's a joy to see all of you here this morning, even Jacob in his LSU shirt. It's a joy to see you. Uh, this is your one warning. Uh, you wear it again, we're going to be subject to church discipline. So, uh, No, I, we are so glad to be here uh, together, worshiping uh, the Lord together and uh, opening up his word. I, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Um, as I've said, we'll pick back up in the book of Acts uh, beginning in January, but uh, for now we're going through this series called Catching the Vision, where we are talking through our mission statement and our values uh, from the Word of God. We want to be a church that is rooted in the Word of God and uh, that, that the Word of God is central to everything that we do, and so we want to see uh, how we need to live and act as a church from Scripture. And so we started talking about our mission statement, that we are a family of faith, living for eternity today, and how we need to be a church that is thinking not temporally, not thinking uh, with, with eyes that only see the things that are here today, but eyes that are looking up to the glory of God and the beauty of Christ Jesus and are living for that, are living for things that will matter for an eternity, investing in things that are going to matter long after we're gone. Uh, that's what the kind of church we want to be, a church living for eternity today. Uh, then we started talking about uh, our first value, apply the scriptures. We want to be a church that uh, opens up the word of God and applies the scriptures. We talked about foster authentic community, uh, that we want to be a church that is together in not just um, this kind of fake friendliness, but a real, genuine, authentic community with one another where we're open and real with one another and can walk through life together. We, uh, we talked about how we want to be a church that operates through prayer, um, that we want everything we do to be rooted and grounded in prayer and led by prayer. And this morning, we're going to talk about engaging the lost. We need to be a church that engages the lost with the gospel. We value intentionally, consistently, and unashamedly taking the gospel to the lost. Let me say that again. We value intentionally, consistently, and unashamedly taking the gospel to the lost. That is something that we long to do. It's something that we're looking forward to. It's something that should, should mark all of our ministries here in this church, that we want to go and bring the gospel out through those doors and out into a world that is desperate to hear it. This morning we're going to see that from Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to begin in verse 16. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16, says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for that promise there at the end of this text that, that Jesus is with us. That you're not a God that is far off, that is, that is distant and unreachable, but that you are a God who is, who is so personal that your son put on human flesh, added humanity to his deity, and came to live among us. We celebrate that as we enter into this Christmas season, God. We, we celebrate the fact that you are not some distant foreign deity that is unreachable and uh, unavailable, but God, you love us and you're with us. God, we pray that we would be people that, that are changed by your word, 
that we would be people who, who are longing to apply your word to our lives, that we would be people who are, who are ready and willing to do exactly what you're calling us to do, God. So this morning, give us ears to hear exactly what you're calling us to do. Give us a heart that is ready to apply it and mold us and shape us this morning into your image or into the image of Jesus. Because we love you, we praise you, and we worship you with all that we are. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Every now and then, a group will face an event or an opportunity or a challenge, uh, and they need to get on the same page with how to deal with it or how to respond. Right, so in the middle of the 500s BC, the Lydian Empire was this huge empire, a great, rich, wealthy empire in what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and the Lydian Empire, uh, in the middle of the 500s BC, could look across the way and they could see the Persian Empire gaining steam. All right, so the Persian Empire was starting to grow, but it was still young. It, was still, it wasn't the, the grand Persian Empire that we think of. It was still early in its stage. And so the Lydian Empire was looking at that and saw that it's an event that needed responding to, right, the, the rise of the Persian Empire. So the, the Lydian king, uh, Croesus, he met with his advisors, and they all disagreed on what to do. Some saw the Persians as an opportunity, right? This is a rich group of people that aren't quite fully formed yet, and so they could go in, they could take them out, and they could add land and power and wealth to their empire if they just went in and fought them. Uh, there's another group that saw the Persians as a threat, and so they said, we need to go in and take them out before they take us out. So they agreed they needed to go to war, but for different reasons. And there's a third group that said, well, we're not going to win if we go to war, so we need to batten down the hatches, we need to improve our defenses, or we need to strike a deal with the Persians and get on their good side. So they all disagreed about what to do, but this is a big event. This is a big challenge or opportunity in front of them. They needed to be on the same page, and so the, the Lydian king, Croesus, he went to the Oracle of Delphi, which is uh, kind of the, the most important, most famous quote-unquote prophets uh, in those days, uh, in 550 BC. So he, he went to the Oracle of Delphi and he said, what should we do? Should we attack the Persians or not? And the Oracle of Delphi answered in a uh, typically uh, very roundabout kind of way, very vague answer. The Oracle said, if you attack the Persians, you will destroy a great empire. And so that sounded good to him. He's like, yeah, sweet. Like, we're going to do it. And so he got up his men. They all got on the same page. They went and they, they went, marched into Persia and swiftly lost. Like, they, they were brutally beaten and promptly destroyed the Lydian Empire. So in one sense, the oracle was right. He destroyed a great empire. It was just his, uh, not the Persians. Uh, but they needed to be on the same page, and they took really bad advice and got on the same page with that. But they needed to be on the same page with how to correctly and properly handle this event. The disciples faced an event that was so incredible, so unprecedented, that they needed to be on the same page with how to respond to it in the correct way. And that's the resurrection of Jesus. Like we can think back to uh, the resurrection of Jesus. We, we have a context for it. right? We have we grown up hearing about and thinking about the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We have an entire holiday that is devoted to the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but we forget that the disciples had never seen that before, right? That's not a normal thing. That's not a, an everyday occurrence. Jesus, their leader, had died and had been dead for three days, and then three days later, he just walked out of the tomb. That's not normal. That's very untraditional, and so it's such an, an unprecedented event. They needed to be on the same page about how to respond to that, right? This whole time, 
Jesus had been saying that he's the Messiah, that he's the King of Kings, that he's the Lord of Lords. He's, he's the one that, that they should be following. He's the Son of Man, the Son of God, all pointing back to Old Testament texts. He's been saying all of these things, and then he was murdered by the Romans. And uh, that, that was the end of it in the disciples' minds. But again, three days later, Jesus gets out of the grave. And so the disciples need to be on the same page with how to respond to that, right? Unprecedented, major event. They need to know how to respond all in one mind, and they were really divided about how to do that. We can see that beginning in verse 16 from this text. They were, they were divided. Uh, they were not on the same page with how to respond uh, to this major unprecedented event. They see this in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So this is setting the scene for the story here at the end of Matthew. Where Jesus, he rises from the dead, and he tells his disciples, go meet me on this mountain in Galilee, and we're going to talk. And so I, I, it should be noted that we don't find this out here in Matthew, but in the other Gospels like Luke and John, we see that this, isn't the, the, this mountaintop meeting is not the first time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples. He has likely appeared to them several times before this, and so they're very aware Jesus is alive. They weren't just following some hearsay of, hey, this Jesus guy claims to be Jesus. Uh, why don't you just go to Galilee and see if, see if you'll meet him there? Like, they're very aware that Jesus is alive, and they're doing exactly what he said. They're going to the mountain that Jesus told them to go to, and they're standing there waiting for Jesus, and then they see him. Jesus comes, and we see what happens in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I want to talk about that, that second part there. Some doubted. Like what, what did they doubt? As I mentioned already, the disciples already knew that Jesus was alive. They had already come in contact with him several times. He had already appeared to them on a multitude of occasions. And so this, this is more than likely they're not doubting the fact that Jesus was alive. They'd already seen it. They'd already believed it. They followed his directions to go to Galilee. And so on some level, they already believed that Jesus was alive and that they were going to meet him here in Galilee. So when we read that some doubted, we don't need to put into that um, the idea like uh, Thomas doubting or, or some of the disciples doubting about whether Jesus was alive or not. The whole book of Matthew, in, in the whole book, Matthew is writing and trying to explain that Jesus is the Messiah. Right, that Jesus is the, the one that was promised from throughout the Old Testament. Right, the, the Savior who was going to come and rescue people from sin and death. That Jesus was the Son of God. That he was God in human flesh. That Jesus was the, the righteous one. The, the king who would rule over the, the, the kingdom of God for all of eternity. Matthew is making that case throughout the book of throughout the book of Matthew. And so here the disciples come, they see Jesus, and they respond to him by worshiping him, but there's some of them who are doubting that that is the right response. Because right in front of them is Jesus. They've lived with him for three years. I mean, this is, he's a guy, right? I mean, he did just rise from the dead, and he said some amazing things about being God, but, but at, the, at the back of some people's minds, like, he's still a man. So is it right, is it correct to worship him? Is it, is it the right response to bow down on his feet and to give him glory and praise? Because for some of them, that was the right response. Jesus rose from the dead, and that proved that he's exactly who he said he was, that he is the Messiah, that he's, that he's the Savior, that he's the Lord of lords and King of kings, and so they're going to bow down and worship him, but there are others who are doubting that that's the correct response. He, 
he's a great guy, he's a great teacher, he may be the savior, but I don't know if we need to worship him like God. So they worshiped and some doubted, but we see Jesus respond in verse 18. And what he, what he responds with is telling. Jesus says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So here are the disciples disagreeing, battling with one another, not really understanding how to respond to Jesus. Some think they need to worship him and glorify him because he's the Lord of lords and king of kings. And there's others who think, well, he's a guy, so we can't worship him, we can't lift him up, and we can't praise him. And Jesus comes in and he says, guys, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like He, he is getting them on the same page about how to respond to himself. He says, all authority, all leadership, all power has been given to me. Again, the book of Matthew has been making this case throughout the book, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he's the one that they've been waiting for. And, and here in Matthew chapter 28, here at the end of the book, Jesus says, yeah, that is me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This parallels beautifully with the resurrection of Jesus, uh, with the death of Jesus and his resurrection just a few chapters before. When Jesus has died, he, uh, is, is killed, he's died, he's buried in the tomb, and then three days later he walks out of the grave, and that shows that he has authority, that he has power over sin and death. Think back to Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted. He's, he's walking with and walking around in the desert, the, the, the devil comes to him and begins to tempt him. And what does he tempt him with the third time? He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you would worship me, I'll give you all of this. Like if, you, if you'll just bow down and worship the devil, then I will give you all authority over the kingdoms of the earth. And that's what Jesus was tempted with the third time. But here we see at the end of the book of Matthew that by his death, and resurrection, Jesus has been given authority over all of it. He stayed true, he stayed and lived a perfect life. He died for our sins and he rose again from the grave. And when he rose again from the grave, he showed that the enemy of God has no power. And that sin and death are empty and hollow over the people of God. That all the promises of the enemy of God, all of, the, all of the promises of power, all of the promises of life, all of the promises of, of hope and joy that the enemy gives us, they're all hollow and empty. And Jesus showed that when he rose from the dead, that he has authority, that he has power. And he made all of the enemies of God, he made all of the, the heavenly forces that are against the kingdom of God, he made all of sin and death look utterly foolish. Because he rose again from the dead. And he has all authority over everything in heaven and on earth. Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm that Messiah. He's saying, I am the King of Kings. I am the Lord of Lords. I am the one that you should worship. What Jesus, again, is saying here echoes a lot of Old Testament passages. It echoes a lot of Old Testament texts because all the, we've talked about this before, but all of the hopes and the the, the the expectations for Israel were placed upon this Messiah. They were anxiously waiting and longing for someone who would come and save them from sin and death. 
They were anxiously waiting for someone who would, who would bring about the kingdom of God and who would rule eternally over the people of God. They were waiting for him. They, they looked back to Genesis uh, chapter 49 when Jacob is, is prophesying over his kids and he says from Judah, somebody is going to come who will rule. There was a scepter that will never leave Judah. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the ruler who's coming from the, the, the line of Judah. I'm the ruler who will rule over the kingdom of God forever. They look back to Numbers when Balaam is prophesying over the people of Israel, and he says a scepter is going to rise out of Israel, a ruler who is going to lead the nations. Jesus is saying, that's me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They think back to Isaiah. When Isaiah is prophesying this Messiah, when he's prophesying a savior that will come for the people of Israel, when he's prophesying a leader for the people of God that will come from Israel, Jesus is saying, that's me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Daniel, perhaps the clearest allusion to this verse, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is prophesying about the Son of Man who's going to come and is going to be given authority over the world. He'll be handed authority by God over all things. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That he is God in human flesh, having added humanity to his deity. That he has complete control over all things. He is reigning over the kingdom of God. And therefore, he's worthy of all worship and all glory and all honor and all praise. Jesus is saying, those disciples that are worshiping me are right. That's the correct response to my resurrection because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's confirming that fact that he is the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God. He goes on in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I don't want to skip over that word, therefore, in, in uh, 28.19. Because what happens a lot of times is we open up the Bible and we quote Matthew 28.19 and 20 when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about missions. We say, God has called us to go and all the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like we, we, have, we, we, we bring up those verses, go and make disciples, as, as the Great Commission, and we put those on banners, and we celebrate the fact that God has called us to this ministry. But, a lot, but we cannot divorce verses 19 and 20 from verse 18. Like The reason that we go to make disciples, the reason that we go around the world to preach the gospel and to see people come to know Jesus, the reason that we do that at all is because Jesus is worthy of worship and honor and praise. And it is heartbreaking that there are billions of people on this planet that are not giving him the worship that he's due. It is devastating that we are worshiping God and we are worshiping Jesus and giving him the glory that he's supposed to receive and that there are people that we are surrounded with who are not glorifying God. They are glorifying other things that are seeking life and satisfaction and joy and things that will never fill them up, that are worshiping their own egos, that are worshiping their own desires, that are living for their own passions 
and are worshiping themselves. It is heartbreaking that there are people around the world who are worshiping these fake gods that are no gods at all and are trying to get life and salvation from them when they can never bring it. It's heartbreaking that there's any worship at all going on in the world that isn't directed towards Jesus because he's the only one that is worthy of honor and glory and praise because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So the fact that there are people who do not worship Jesus is the reason that we go and make disciples. That has to be our driving force. You can't separate the two. That word therefore is there for a purpose. Like It has a reason for being there. It's because the reason that we go is that Jesus is worthy of praise. He is worthy of worship. So what Jesus commands us to do is to train and to make disciples. Now, I don't want to get too technical uh, in the, the original Greek, but the only, uh, technically, the only command in that verse is make disciples. We'll come back to go in a second. Uh, but the command that Jesus wants us to focus on, and the command that Jesus is putting out in front of us that this whole passage is centered around is make disciples. Go out and find people and bring them the gospel and and share with them the salvation that is found in Jesus and train them up as disciples so that they will be people who will worship Jesus too. That's the idea. Is that you're worshiping Jesus, go make more people that worship Jesus. Go show people the glory of God and the beauty of the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ so that they will also worship Jesus alongside you. The command is to go and make disciples, and that is a command for us. And that is a command that we fall woefully short of far too often. That's a command that we are, uh, we kind of add to our to-do list. Kind of maybe further down the list, depending on how excited we are about evangelism. So well, if I get around to it, if I find a good opportunity, if I, if I can maybe squeeze it in, then I will try to reach some people with the gospel. If I, if I get around to it, I might slip in a reference to Jesus or maybe a reference to church in a conversation, uh, and then I'll, that'll, that'll do the job. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that he is worthy of all worship and all glory and all honor and praise, and so because of that, we need to go carry with us the message of the gospel wherever we go, and we need to show people the glory of God so that they'll behold the glory of God and the beauty of salvation in Jesus and that they will worship Jesus too along with us, and that that needs to be our guiding principle. Our, the ambition of our hearts is to see people come to know Jesus. That word go there, uh, if it was translated on its own, it would probably be more uh, likely translated as you go. Now, where it is in the sentence, uh, our English doesn't do a very good job of translating the nuance with that verse. Um, because what, what he's saying there is, is as you go, go train disciples, but the the idea with where it is in the sentence is that Jesus is doing the sending. That Jesus is sending us out wherever we go, and as we go there, we need to carry with us the message of the gospel and make disciples there. Now, why do I bring that up? It's because way too often we take this verse and we apply it to international missions and we make this something that professionals do. We say, 
we need to go. We focus on the go word of the verse, and we say, this applies to us leaving the country, going overseas, and going training and taking the gospel to people who have never heard it before. And that's what's in front of us. We think, we think this verse is a very professional thing to do, and we leave it to the professional missionaries. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. It does carry with it this idea of going to all the nations. And it is my prayer that the Lord would raise up dozens and then hundreds of missionaries from this church in the coming years. Go all over the world to carry the gospel to people who have never heard it before. But the idea is that Jesus is sending you somewhere. Whether it's just home to your street, whether it's to your school or your workplace, whether it's to go short-term overseas, whether it's to go long-term overseas as a missionary, God is sending you somewhere, and wherever he's sending you, make disciples there. You have a mandate from Jesus to make disciples exactly where he's sending you, exactly where he's placed you. So if you are on your street, he is sending you to your street to go make disciples of your neighbors so that your entire street can be a street that glorifies and praises God and gives Jesus, Jesus the worship that he's due. If you're in a school, he's sending you to that school to go make disciples there. Go teach and train your friends and, and those around you to follow Jesus. If you're in a family and you have lost people in your family, there are people that you are related to who do not know Jesus, he is sending you to your family. So go make disciples there. Wherever you work is not an accident. God is sending you there to make disciples. Our goal, our mission should be that wherever we go, whatever place we go, wherever God sends us, we need to carry with us the message of the gospel so that people around us will give Jesus the worship and the honor and the glory we do, so that he's due, so we can see more and more people worshiping Christ, so we can see more and more people become disciples. He says, again, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, what those two participles are doing is they're teaching us again what that making disciples means. It means making people that are worshipers of Jesus. People who have committed and are following the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and giving them the honor that they're due. And people whose lives are designed and to follow Jesus. All of the commands that he's given us. It is making disciples, people who are worshipers of God people who are worshiping Jesus and everything they do along with us. The idea, is, idea there is this multiplication process where more and more people worship Jesus and it spreads out and fans like a wildfire. So more and more and more and more people are all worshiping Jesus and giving him the glory he's due. He ends it with this in verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is a, a beautiful way to, to end the book of Matthew. If we think all the way back to Matthew chapter 1, uh, to a verse that we like to quote around Christmas time, uh, Matthew talks about how Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. Right? He is, and, we, and we celebrate that at Christmas time because here's the God who created all things 
the Son of God added humanity to his deity, and he came as a precious little child. And we celebrate that, that he is God with us. But here at the end of the book in Matthew 28, Jesus says, I am Emmanuel. I am God with you, and I'm with you till the end of the age. He truly is with us. That As we go out to make people who worship Jesus, as we go out carrying the message of the gospel with us and seeing our friends and our family members and our coworkers come to know Christ and give Jesus the worship that he's due, as we go out and we do those things, Jesus is right there with us. That he is on our side, that he is for us, that he is empowering us and equipping us as we see in the book of, uh, of Acts. As we've already seen that God is equipping and empowering us to all to do this work. He's with us. That we're not soloists who go out floundering and, and failing and, and trying to say the gospel and, and completely butchering it. But that if we can go out there and to be people who lift up the name of Jesus with the things that we do and say if we can go out there and be people who can articulate the life change that happens when you place your faith in Jesus, if we can be people who can go out there and articulate the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, he's with us. He is empowering us and equipping the work that we do. We have the God who created all all things on our side as we go out and to evangelize, as we go out to engage the lost. Here's the idea. Because Jesus is worthy of all worship, we should engage the lost to make disciples. Because Jesus is worthy of all worship, we should go out and engage the lost to make disciples. If we do not go out and make disciples, then we're saying at least implicitly that we're okay with Jesus just being worshipped by us. And that we're completely okay with our friends and our family members and our coworkers and our neighbors worshiping somebody else and giving somebody else the worship that Jesus is due. Instead, the, the cry of our heart needs to be that more and more people would worship Jesus because it's in Jesus that salvation comes. It's in Jesus that we find life and joy and peace and satisfaction, it's all of those things are in Jesus alone. And so we want to see more and more people lifting up the name of Jesus every single day. We want our friends and our family members and our coworkers and our neighbors to worship Jesus and find the salvation that's found in him. And because of that, we go out and engage the lost with the gospel. Because of that, we need to go out and carry the gospel message wherever it is that God is sending us, to our schools, to our to our families, to our co-workers. Go engage the people around you with the gospel. Take the, the message of salvation in Jesus to people that need to hear it. Another way that we can apply this is we need to pray for the lost. It's a highly undervalued way to reach the lost with the gospel. We need to lift them up in prayer to the Lord. That, we, that he can go before us and prepare their hearts to hear the message of the gospel so that we can go. And when we bring the message of the gospel, they are receptive and they worship Jesus alongside us. We need to pray for the lost. We need to go overseas and take the message to people who have never heard it. Believe it or not, there are people in the world who have no idea who Jesus is. 
and we grow up in the, in, in the Bible Belt. We live where most of the people around us, even if they don't believe in Jesus, have heard of him. And there are people around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. And they, just as much as us, need to know who Jesus is. They have never encountered, and in and, and some places don't even have the ability or the capacity to encounter the message of salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. And we need to take it to them. We need to make disciples to the ends of the earth because Jesus has authority over all the earth. And we need to pray for the nations. God may not be sending you overseas for a long-term missions, but it, again, should be your heart that everybody in the world would worship Jesus. So pray for the nations. Pray that the over 1.3 billion people in China who don't know Jesus would have a revival and that the Christians there would, would spark a revival there and we would see millions of people come to know Jesus in China. Pray for the billion people in India who do not know Jesus. Pray for the nations so that we can see more and more people around the world come to know Christ. God is working around the world in incredible ways. Join him by praying for the nations. All of this combines to be a people who are engaging the lost with the gospel, whose hearts are stirred and impassioned to see people come to know Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, when he was uh, in his book, um, The Soul Winner, he takes the passage where uh, Rachel in the Bible in Genesis, she says, give me a, ch a child or I'll die. Um, and he takes that and kind of uh, takes the wording of it and he says, give me a soul or I'll die. And give me souls or I die. And he teaches Christians in his book, Soul Winner, to pray that prayer, to, to cry out and say, God, give me souls or I die. Like that's, the passion we need to have to see people come to know Jesus. John Knox, who was a pastor in England, he, he said a similar prayer. He prayed, give me Scotland or I die. And God used him to spark an incredible revival there in Scotland throughout his ministry. George Whitfield, in his uh, several trips back and forth between uh, Europe and America, he prayed a similar prayer, give me souls or I die. And God used him in a mighty way to spark revival throughout the Americas and throughout Europe. Is that the cry of your heart? Give me souls or I die. Give me souls or what purpose do I have for living? Allow me to be someone who, who points people to Jesus, who carries with me the message of the gospel, or why else should I be here? Is that the cry of your heart? Or are we content just to worship Jesus on our own? And to allow everybody else to just live their own lives worshiping things that are never going to give them life. Engage the lost with the gospel. Go and carry that message to people that are desperate and need to hear it. This morning, that's what God is calling you to do. Who in your life needs to hear the gospel? Who in your life needs to hear the message of salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. If we each just led one person to the Lord every year, and that's with all the people that we are, we're reaching with the gospel, all the, all the times we're, we're uh, presenting the gospel, all the, time, all the people that we're praying for, if we just each led one person a year to the Lord, and then they in turn led one person a year to the Lord after that, we would see over 10,000 people 
impacted for the kingdom of God by the end of the decade. We need to be a people that engages the lost with the gospel. Who in your life needs to receive the gospel? In a moment, we're going to pray. And God is calling you to engage the lost with the gospel. So as we pray, I want you to, to ask the Lord to show you who in your life needs to receive the gospel message, who you need to go take the gospel to. And pray that the Lord would give you a heart that is on fire for his kingdom, that would cry out and say, give me souls or I die. Then maybe God is calling you to overseas missions. Maybe he's calling you to go take the gospel to people who have never heard it before. That's you. After I pray, after we're dismissed, I'd love for you to, to come talk to me about what that could mean. Some of you here this morning have never believed the gospel. You cannot rightly call yourself a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you believe in Jesus. Maybe you believe that he existed. Maybe you believe he was a good teacher. Maybe you believe he was a good person. Maybe you even believe that he died to give us salvation. But you can honestly say that you have never worshipped Jesus as God. You have never given him the praise and the honor and the glory that he's doing. You can't call yourself a disciple of Jesus. So what you need to do this morning more than anything else is you need to enter into a relationship with God. You need to repent of your sin, turn and believe in Jesus, receive the salvation that comes from him. So this morning, as I pray for us, I'm going to ask you to do just that. Everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. We don't usually do this, but if you're here this morning, and that's you, you'll say, I, I have never worshipped Jesus as God. I've never had that high of a view of Jesus. I've never repented of my sins and turned to follow Christ. If that's you this morning, and you want to follow Jesus for the very first time, you want to give him the worship that he's due for the first time in your life, I'm inviting you to just slip up your hand. If that's you, just raise your hand this morning. I want to follow Jesus for the very first time. I want to pray for us. As I do, I'm, uh, what I'm being told is that most of you believe in Jesus. You are worshiping him, and God is calling you out of these walls. Go find more and more people and make disciples. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a church of people who, who glorify you and honor you with their lives. But I pray, Father, that you would send us out. God, that we would be on fire for you, that we would be a people who are passionate about lost souls, that we would be a people who would long to see this church filled with people who are, who are new in their relationship with you, people who are gone from death to life. God, that we would long for revival to break out in Roanoke and the surrounding area. God, that the cry of our hearts would be that our family members and our friends would know you. That our neighbors would worship you. That our co-workers would experience the life that comes from you. God, let that be the cry of our hearts. God, give us revival. Help us to see new disciples forming every single day as we go out. We 
proclaim the gospel to the lost. Father, we love you. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.